It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today, Ilhan Omar, of course, she's the Somali Muslim immigrant woman who represents South Minneapolis in Congress. She just endorsed Bernie for president. For our report, we turn to David Perry. He's a historian and journalist whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Washington Post, and The Nation. We reached him today in Minneapolis. David Perry, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. Since February, you have gone to almost every public appearance of hers in Minnesota, and you've gotten to know her staff in Minneapolis and in D.C., You've talked with her about her political philosophy. What have you learned from all that? You know, I started doing this right after, as I'm sure you remember, the All About the Benjamins tweet. Yeah. Um, and kind of the response to that. And I just, to sort of cards on the table, I live in the neighboring district, but I work in her district. I'm actually in her district right now Great. Um, as I'm talking to you. And I just felt that the conversation around her nationally was not what I hear locally and not what I'd observe locally. And I was thinking of, about how to sort of tell that story. And I thought, well, I'm here. I should just sort of put my feet on the sidewalk and start going to things and meeting people and talking to people and listening and seeing if there's a big upswell of dissent and, and anger at her um, from some of the people who voted for her. I didn't find that, first of all. Um, I find only intensifying support. And I should say that it's not just South Minneapolis, but North Minneapolis as well, and some of the suburbs. It's a, it's a majority white, but fairly diverse, uh, about 68% white, fairly diverse economically and racially district. You know, it's a, it's a great urban Midwestern district, and people are deeply supportive of her. The other thing, though, is how it's not that she isn't engaged with these hot-button issues, but when she puts her head down and just gets to work in the district, she's not talking about herself versus Trump. She's not uh, sort of touting herself up. She is uh, creating these events, just event after event after event, in which she brings a lot of people to the table. And whatever kind of spotlight is on her, she tries to put it on the other people, people who have things to say, people who have things to teach. And I just saw that again and again on, on environmentalism, on um, racial disparities in women's health, on Medicare for all, on black business owners and tech. I mean, big, big national issues and highly local issues. That's just her pattern. And you say in your piece in The Nation that she was a reluctant candidate. Is that really true? It really is true. And there's a lot of reasons for that, though I think a lot of them have to do in her own narrative uh, with, with gender, but also that the Somali community came to Minnesota in the, really in the aftermath of the war there and formed a fairly tight enclave, which then had a, a couple of representatives in, in Minnesota and Minneapolis politics. 
And she wasn't part of that structure, in part because she was younger, in part because she was a woman. Um, and so she got involved in organizing and doing political work, but never really seems to have thought of herself as the person who was going to be on the stage until until people uh, pushed her to do it. She joined a group of other Somali women. I talk about this. She's talked about this a lot. Um, and, and sort of said, listen, you, you have something. You should do it. But what that means, and I think, again, this is something that the, the nation, not the people around the country just don't, don't know, is they see her as a, a kind of a, a politician that came out of our vibrant local Somali community here. But she really came out of the whole community. She came out of cross-group progressive activism. And that's why I think her base of support here is so strong. Until I read your piece in The Nation, I did not know that in 2014 she was assaulted at a local Democratic Party caucus by several guys. Tell us about that. So that is a really confusing incident. And in reporting this, I, I called up a lot of my friends who just report on local politics. And we still don't know exactly what happened. We don't know who was behind it. And it's, it's sort of a long story involving a lot of different people, all competing for office in this region. She was working for one candidate. There was another candidate who was caucusing for yet a third candidate. Um, she was there to represent someone, and then violence broke out at this caucus, um, and she went to the hospital. I think the, the, the takeaway for people generally is, again, to understand that she had to emerge in Minnesota politics against the grain, against a, a number of dominant sort of entrenched political factors, both within the local Somali community, which really was part of the, which, what she represented in the Minnesota House, um, but also just more generally of entrenched political interests in the Democratic Party within Minneapolis that she had to work against. And this moment of violence is a particularly gripping and, and upsetting moment that, in, the, in that trajectory, but it's part of a much bigger story. And that was true, I think, also when she ran, she decided to run for Congress. I, I didn't have time to talk about this in the piece, but I actually started my interview with her telling me the story of her decision to run and how she she went to this sort of co-working progressive space or, or co, co-organizing progressive space and brought a lot of people together. And, and that's where actually her line where she's the optimist in the room. Everyone came around and sort of talked about reasons it would work and reasons not to work. And she said, well, here I am, the optimist in the room. Uh, you know, can I do it both for me, but also is there anyone else who's going to run the kind of progressive campaign we want, connecting to the grassroots, organizing across communities and across issues? And ultimately she and her, her sort of closest collaborators decided no, and she filed. Let's talk about that terrible day in July when Trump went after her at that rally of his in North Carolina and the audience chanted, send her back, a really nightmarish, uh, uh, evil event. She flew back to Minneapolis after that. What happened there? She flies home and I get a Facebook message, not because I'm a journalist, but because I'm in touch with Minneapolis progressive communities saying, hey, uh, Congresswoman Omar is coming back. We're all going to meet at the baggage claim at the Minneapolis airport and welcome her home. And so I went out there, and there were a couple hundred people cheering and chanting, and she grabbed a bullhorn, and she she did talk about Trump, and she said, you know, I'm not going to be intimidated, and he's afraid of the kind of the, the movement that we're building and the values we represent. 
And then what was so interesting to me is that she, she was there with um, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. They were going to do a town hall um, in, on Medicare for All in, in a South Minneapolis historically black neighborhood in the Sabathany Community Center, this really interesting place in an interesting neighborhood, kind of the heart of South Minneapolis. And so I and I got to say a lot of other reporters, if you, if you look, you'll see there were a lot of national stories filed that weekend by people who had just ducked into Minneapolis and then ducked out again. She gets on stage. There's this crowded room. There's almost no dissent. You, you see po- po- reporters were crawling the room trying to find you know, both sides naysayers. They're just not there. There's no protest there. There's just a community of people riled up, ready to support her. And she spent the next two hours carefully passing off the microphone to a very well, carefully assembled panel of experts to talk about the details of getting us to Medicare for all. So I think that really is a just a telling moment in who she is as a politician. Yes, she spoke about Trump at the airport. And yes, she, she did say maybe 25, 30 seconds at the very beginning of the event saying, yes, I know there's this terrible thing. Thanks for everyone's support. But she wants to get back to work. And that's the group of people she assembled. And that's really what we did. And I think a CNN report called it kind of boring. And, um, you know, sometimes the details are boring and the work of politics is boring. And she she was doing the work. You say you've never seen a politician talk so little at town halls. Tell us about that. You know, usually politicians want the spotlight, right? They want yeah. they want people to pay attention to them, their message, their words. If they're inspiring you, they want to inspire you to be focused on them. That's part of what political charismatic leadership does. I don't have one of those clocks like, you know, CNN or The New York Times uses to count minutes at debates. Mm-hmm. But I am pretty sure that at every event I've been to, Ilhan Omar has not only spoken the least, but dramatically the least. Hmm. She gives her introduction, she has her panelists speak, and then she asks them questions. And they're prepared questions. They're, they're questions that are calculated, like you, a good interviewer, to draw out the best of the person who she's put up on this stage. And then she says thank you, and everyone cheers, and she leaves. And and that's real. And sometimes in the Q and A, she gets back into it a little bit. But she's really here to make sure that the people who want to listen to her also listen to the people that she listens to. Let's talk about her relationship with the Jewish voters. Some, many of whom are in her district, and some of whom are in the neighboring uh, district. Tell us about what she did there after those charges that she was anti-Semitic and after Trump tweeted, she hates Israel, she hates all Jews. Yeah, so this was, I thought, in some ways the most interesting part of our conversation in which she told me for a while about how she tries to avoid community gatekeepers, how she's interested in locating people who might not otherwise be heard, and that's part of her strategy. And I really do think that backfired on her a little bit when she took office and started talking about Israel without really feeling that she needed to spend a lot of time consulting with local Jewish leaders and kind of having them explain to her how their constituency sees the world so that she can not not weigh in on an issue she thinks is very important in terms of, of Palestinian rights, but that she can do so in a way that doesn't create unnecessary divides between her and people who might otherwise support her. The Jewish community in Minneapolis and the suburbs, um, she, she represents St. Louis Park, which is a big Jewish community, and then her neighboring district is represented by a, a Jewish politician, Dean Phillips, um, and again, lots of Jewish constituents there. And just so everyone knows, I'm also Jewish, um, so I'm, I'm sort of from a secular Jewish background. 
uh, progressive in lots of ways, and that's pretty typical. These are people who want to support Palestinian rights, but who also want to make sure that Jewishness is not under attack. Um, so after the, that moment in February, she called lots of local Jewish leaders from within her district. There's a very progressive uh, synagogue in South Minneapolis that at least one of the rabbis there um, was involved, put together a call, and has in general, my sense, tried to stay more in touch with those particular voices, because she realizes that everything she says about Israel is going to quickly be run through a filter and interpreted not just by Trump, but by um, a lot of Jewish journalists um, who, who are looking for this kind of narrative, interpreted in the worst possible light. And I think she has continued to make some mistakes around that, but also I think anytime she talks about Israel, anytime she talks about Palestine, there's going to be a temptation on certain groups to interpret her in this way. So she's had to shore up uh, her connections to local Jewish leaders. And let's talk for a minute about her relationship with Dean Phillips, the congressman you mentioned who represents one district over, also a first-term congressman. He's Jewish. Yep. He's also not a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, but he has worked with her privately and supported her publicly. Talk about her relationship with Dean Phillips. You know, that's not something that I have sort of from her mouth what or I haven't talked to him either about what they've, what they what they say about each other. But I've read the public statements. You know, again after the all about the Benjamin comment, for which Omar apologized. Phillips put out a statement saying, "I'm glad she apologized. That was a mistake. You know, we're in good dialogue about it." And then flash forward to August when Israel denies her a visa, and Phillips puts out a statement in support of Omar and in support of of her sort of her focus on human rights in that region of the world. So I think. I think that's very telling. Um, there, is, there is an assumption that Jewish voters in this region, or at least slightly more conservative ones, may be turned off by her. But I guess I'm just not seeing that. I, I could go to every synagogue in town and talk to them about Ilhan Omar, and I might get some different narratives. But the people at her event, the public figures, the leaders here, you know, who are, who are within the, the, the left to center-left kind of sphere anyway, they are glad she apologized. They agree that she made some mistakes early on, and they're standing with her. And her district, I know, is overwhelmingly Democratic. There's no chance that a Republican is ever going to defeat her. But what about Dean Phillips? This had been a Republican district. Is he getting any heat for supporting her? I have not seen any heat on that. There are two people who have announced they're running against him for the Republican nomination. Um, I looked at all their campaign materials. There's not a mention of Ilhan Omar and anything that I've seen that could change. There was in April an attempt to kind of use Omar as a wedge issue. The Norm Coleman, the former senator and mayor of St. Paul, led a group doing a putting a couple hundred thousand dollars in digital ads in the region, um, really focusing on Omar um, and targeting people like Phillips. But that seems to have died down. So I guess we kind of have to wait and see. We're still over a year away from the the election, um, we don't know who the Democrat, who the Republican candidate will be. My feeling is that the the people who have declared so far are not the major contenders for that seat. But we'll see. It's definitely the kind of swing seat um, that will be important for control of the House in uh, 2020. Ilhan Omar has faced more intense attacks than 
just about anyone else in politics, and she's only been in Congress for a year. We know she gets a lot of death threats. She's had the crowd chanting, send her back. The Alabama GOP voted to expel her from Congress. She's just at the beginning of her congressional career. How does she handle the pressure? Well, she tells me, and she tells other people too, that she is totally fine, um, that she has been through worse that she, you know, her, her life experience coming as a refugee um, and then as a, you know, moving through multiple stages before reaching home here um, as, a, as a, you know, her own experience trying to move through education and having kids and, and, and those difficult times I think that many of us have dealing with debt and trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives. You know, that, that sort of these words just aren't bothering her and that these attacks aren't bothering her. She told me in a very really kind of hilarious part of our conversation that within, within the Somali community, there's a lot of banter, sort of insult-related banter, so that all nicknames are kind of insulting, but friendly insults are hers is half-life because she's tiny. She just says she has a very thick skin. I mean, she's obviously taking care with her security. She has security detail. Her security is present at all of her events and on the street with her as she's moving. Um, so it's not that she's oblivious to the risks, but what seems to bother her emotionally is not the attacks on her, but the ways that attacks on her may affect other people who identify with her, other people who are, um, in particular, I think, you know, Muslim immigrants, women, um, anyone wearing a hijab, anyone who is Muslim, anyone who is, who is um, African or African-American, that the way that the attacks on her try to assert her status as other, as not belonging here, as someone who should be sent back, it doesn't bother her, but it bothers her that other people may feel it too, or that there could be, you know, even in Minneapolis, uh, another Somali school kid who is bullied by uh, people shouting, send her back to a kid. That, that is the kind of thing that bothers her. She has endorsed Bernie for president in her endorsement video tweet right now has something like 1.2 million views that suggests something about her significance today. I think that if you're interested in progressive politics, from whether you are a progressive or whether you're someone who hates progressive politics or, or whatever, that she is one of the people who's going to be just a powerful figure in American progressive politics as long as she wants to be. Uh, she has this seat as long as she wants it. I don't know how long she wants it. I don't know what her long-term plans are. I don't think she may know. But she has the ability, uh, along with, in particular, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to command a certain kind of attention from a big chunk of the left. And so we need to pay attention to, to her, but also understand her. I don't want people to just get the sense of her as this national polarizing figure with these big tweets, um, because, again, when I see her in the district, she's just doing a kind of really focused, constituent, issue-oriented work. Um, and that is what her politics seem to be all about. David Perry's report on Ilhan Omar appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, David. This was great. So nice to talk to you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 